Hello, and welcome to the Super Science Adventure Podcast, the movie review and discussion show looking at science fiction, fantasy adventure, and superhero comic book movies. I'm your host, Danny Portilla, and I'm here again with Ali Culata. Hi. Movies are rated in six categories for a total of 36 points and sprinkled with trivia, highlights, and some shade. So, to recap the rules, only science fiction, superhero movies, our fantasy adventure or genre adjacent films, only movies, no TV just yet, and the movie has to be more than two months old just to give everybody a chance. The categories are story, writing, direction, performance, production, and effects. In those categories, everybody can get up to six points, and we will also discuss a best and worst feature of each category. Here we go. Our next movie is Tenet. We all believe we'd run into the burning building. But until we feel that heat, we can never know. You do. You chose to die instead of giving up your colleagues. That test you passed? Not everybody does. Welcome to the afterlife. To do what I do, I need some idea of the threat we face. As I understand it, we're trying to prevent World War III. Nuclear holocaust? No. Something worse. All I have for you is a word. Tell it. It'll open the right doors. Some of the wrong ones, too. Start looking at the world in a new way. Don't try to understand it. Feel it. It'll happen here. Hasn't happened yet. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So we're going to start off with a little synopsis again. Ali Colada. Armed with only one word, tenant, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. That's the synopsis provided by Warner Brother Pictures. Oh, snap. Mm -hmm. Okay. Will he make it, folks? We're all still here. So if you got to the end of the movie... I guess you'd think that it worked. Wait, I have the perfect thing. It's the bomb that didn't go off. The danger no one knew was real. That's the bomb with the real power to change the world. Where's that from? Neil says it. Neil says Neil has all the best lines, I feel like. In oh, this is that m- your line for this guy? No, that's just one of the many ones I like. I, I, I wrote down a bunch of stuff that he said, but I like that one. So... <sighs> This movie, we chose this movie for our second movie, and it's a little bit of a lofty goal because this film is hard. 
Um, this is like sci-fi in all capital letters. There's a lot of stuff that you got to get through in this movie, and you can't do it in one watch. You can't even do it in one rewatch. We've seen this movie three times, and I really... I think four times, honestly. Uh, and I, I think like... that I could still stand to watch it five yeah. more times. But I feel like if I did that, I'd probably like ruin it for myself, as I have done with all other Chris Nolan movies. So, I don't know. I'm going to talk about this a lot as we go through this... I like this movie a lot, but I I don't know how to talk about it without trying to solve the problems and just celebrate it. So I'm going to try to like skirt this line of how the science works. But uh, this movie, more than any other movie in a really, really long time, has forced me to kind of just shut the fuck up and go along with the sci-fi. <laughs> because you're not going to get farther than that <laughs> in this don't film. Don't try to explain it. Feel it. <laughs> yeah, don't try to explain it. Or don't try to understand, understand it. Understand it. Just feel, feel it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. Um, this I is why, it was great. It, uh, you know, we I should we should say that like episode one, Danny picked that movie, and episode two, he was like, "All right, you choose the movie," and I chose this one. Um, I love it. I think it's Christopher Nolan's best. I do. It is probably Christopher Nolan's best film. I do, and um, I want to like preface it also by saying that like Danny and I just watched Interstellar. We hadn't seen that one yet. And upon watching it, we both were kind of like, oh, God, what's going on? And this is kind of going all over the place. But I thought about it. And I want to tell you, I thought about it like the whole entire weekend. And I think Interstellar is also a really great movie. I think, again, there are some like problems with it. But if you think about the concept and the concept of this movie, these are good concepts. These are actually really good sci-fi, you know, plots. They are. So they are. This is actually hear. this is actually great. No, because we're we're well, this is exactly the segue that we want. Let's talk about category number one. Okay. Story, plot, concept. Uh, you can hear full descriptions of these uh, in our first episode. I don't have this info, so don't worry about it right now. But basically, the story or the plot of the movie as an elevator pitch away from the script does it stand on its own? So go ahead, Allie. Ta- uh, defend Tenet to me, please. <laughs> I gave it a six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just think it's really creative. So think about it this way. The entire movie is about experiencing time in reverse. And I don't, I can't think of another movie or book that does that in sci-fi. And that's why I'm giving it a six is because it's a really original concept. And I've got to tell you, after watching movies my entire life, it's really rare to come across movies like that. And I even want to make the case for Interstellar real quick. I'm just going to do it in this one category and then I'll promise I'm going to shut up about that movie. I'm not going to bring it up again. But the same thing with Interstellar is about time. Because really that story is about going to different planets, right? And experiencing time. And at a, at a different pace than the rest of the world. And that is also a super original concept. So I'm just saying, like, I think Christopher Nolan's journey of, like, writing these movies, like Inception and, and all of these other, um, you know, Dark Knight, all of them, they're, they're you know, they're, they're great movies. But these concepts and, this, and the concept of Tenet, to me, are in- incredibly original. I think, like, this is... Who knows, but this might actually be his best idea for a film. I, I, I'm curious to see if he's going to beat it, but I don't know how you can beat an idea of like, let's do a movie about, you know, going through the past, the future and present, but 
actually, it's not like that. We're going to do reverse entropy. I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. So I gave him a six. The other, you know, the other things that we have to talk about when it comes to plot in a movie is like, you know, the whole like hero's journey. You know, is this a hero's journey kind of story? And I, I do think it is. I think protagonist has to defeat the monster, so to speak, and go on the quest, which is reverse, you know, in, in time reversed. And he goes on, a re- uh, you know, this, this voyage. It's got a little bit of like a heist in it, which is like, to me, what I felt like Inception was completely just a heist movie. This has like a little bit of that too, but it's not the entire movie, which I really like about it. Um, and I really love that the whole movie is just a palindrome, you know? You're, you, you're, you're in protagonist's timeline in the beginning of the movie. By the end of it, I feel like you're actually, you're still seeing it from protagonist's point of view, but you're actually, I think you're actually seeing it more so from Neil's timeline. So anyway. I do see a lot of what you're saying there with the story, and I kind of like agree with a lot of it. But I'm also grading this one a little harsher uh, than you are. I think we're switching places just a (laughs) tiny little bit. So I'll play the good cop and you play bad cop today. I know. Um, (laughs) So you gave this a six and I I think you have I think you have really good points going on here. So let me like um, I feel like this is Chris Nolan kind of really embarking into M. Night Shyamalan territory. Uh, And what I mean by that is that this is like a director... Uh, writer, autor, if you will, you know, who is now being known for a brand and known for an idea that he's always trying to put across on screen. There's a few things that I wrote down on here is one is that it's always a heist. There's always a fucking heist, which is Chris Nolan at its, at, at, at its true core. And I found out in reading this in reading about this movie that a lot of that actually comes to do with, of course, being British of a certain age. He's really, really into James Bond films, which, I mean, pushed the spy genre continuously forward and forward and forward. And you see how this like sits on the shoulders of that is actually very interesting. Um, little, first, a little bit of trivia here was that. He wanted this to feel like a spy thriller, but he also purposely stayed away from watching any spy movies over the, like, the last 10 years, uh, which was very hard for him because he loves James Bond. And he also urged none of his actors to watch any spy thrillers. The cast and crew also, you know, cinematography and, and, and effects and everything, because he, he wanted everything to be acting from like a memory of that feeling you get from from spy thrillers as opposed to like directly quoting mm. things or directly being inspired by things. And I see a lot of that come across. I, I see like a lot of like that the the old kind of classic sci-fi stuff where somebody just grabs a little bit from this mythology and grabs a little bit from that mythology and grabs a little bit from this other mythology and kind of throws it together and be like, oh, yeah, this all works together. And it's a little um, Da Vinci Code to me. I found out in reading about this is that the Seder Square is like this palindrome piece of art that they found as a relic left in the ruins of Pompeii that it's this square that has five words on it Seder, Arepo, Tenant, Opera and Rotas in a way that however you flip the square it always looks like it's saying the same words over and over again it's very interesting but you see the little easter egg where you know Seder is the name of the villain mm-hmm. Arepo was the last name of the artist that Cat has an affair with Tenet 
is a religious belief or like a um, actually I have the definition here tenet which also goes to work with the movie any uh, opinion principle or doctrine especially one held as true by the members of a profession a group or a movement Mm -hmm. so the fact that they're using tenet as the tenet is like a little cute but also like a little like yeah man you thought you were real smart when you came up with that i bet the algorithm is also like you know oh we're talking about algorithms like crazy these days because of computers and let me just throw an algorithm in there like an algorithm would be the thing that that sets entropy back there's like a few things here that are just like really clubbing us over the head with the thought of like no this is sci-fi this is sci-fi and it's a lot of things thrown into this bag and I actually think that it's a little tiny bit Chris Nolan repeating himself, hmm. which is, like I said, the M. Night Shyamalan territory. It hits really, really hard the first time you see any Chris Nolan movies. And then they kind of like have a dissipating energy as you watch them more and more and you try to figure them out or you try to like, you know, put things in the basis of reality and everything. And I, I love this because it is it's a theater movie. You're supposed to go to the movie theater and walk out and be like, holy shit what was that spend three hours trying to figure it out over dinner afterwards you know and still you know be like no 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 we need to go see this movie again and all of those things involved i really get it but i'm giving this movie a four for us for a plot concept the the fact that it's like so dense and hard to figure out is the best saving grace for me is that it's really, really complex. And I totally see Chris Nolan sitting at a table with like model Hot Wheel cars and helicopters mm-hmm. and trying to do this backwards and like holding this car. And it's okay, if he's going this way, then he's going this way. And they're gonna... I, I see him pulling out the Legos for this one. <laughs> and I give him kudos for the work that's involved, but it's not the most terribly, terribly you know, big departure from what we've seen him do before. I do agree that it is a refreshing look at uh, messing with time, but it's also, you know, Chris Nolan settling into some M. Night Shyamalan vibes. So, four. Interesting. Yeah, right? (laughs) Well, because I'm like, to me, this is like all of those movies were leading up to this. Whereas, like, I feel like with Shyamalan, it was like the earlier ones were really the better movies and that he, like in his efforts to like hone in on his craft and like tighten up his movies the way that Christopher Nolan has tight tight like this movie's tidy to me all the easter eggs and everything like all are connected maybe the square is a little simple but i think like all of it is just it's like a tight packed you know if i'm going to if i'm going to like argue it in this direction i mean you you have to give the batman trilogy it's it's due but outside of the batman trilogy he's still kind of only in his first four movies hmm, that is true so we still are looking at early chris nolan here yeah but those four movies take him like he t- he takes like 10 years to write these movies you right. know and what i mean and even along so those lines uh, this movie he had the first little kernel of the idea of what if you could reverse yeah. uh, time in the, st- in the st- standpoint of entropy that kernel of the idea was was almost 15 years ago at this right. point oh okay what I was saying is like I feel like his origin he is originality and artistic right expression over time he kind of like lost that by being so technical with his movies mm-hmm. whereas I feel like with Nolan he has in the beginning, what maybe wasn't as creative, 
maybe like, you know, like Memento and, and an Inception. I mean, at the time, I guess Inception was, was really cool. But then upon watching it, you know, now um, I'm not as impressed anymore. Like I said, I, I, I feel like he's kind of going, <laughs> Shyamalan, Shyamalan is going reverse time inverse, right? <laughs> reverse entropy, whereas Christopher Nolan is going forward. So I think that uh, Nolan is... Or backwards. no. Well, because Chris Nolan, Shyamalan is reversing. He's doing. I'm, th- I'm saying that his he's movies trying to go are backwards getting worse. To where he's I'm saying his movies are getting worse. Yeah, yeah but that's regular trying. entropy. Reverse entropy would be Chris Nolan using the uh, turnstile to watch M. Sham- M. Night Shyamalan make his mistakes, and then using that to correct his movie oh, making. Oh, to go forward in the right. past. <laughs> See, this is what this whole but show is going to be. Well, that's why it gets a six is because that is genius. That's really great. I think it's just, I don't know. I love, I just want to see original ideas. And this to me was, was, was pretty original. Yeah, it's original enough. But I feel like our number, you know, like me giving it a six and you giving it a four and it getting it like that. Okay. Yes. I can, I've averaging I, a five, um, is- 10. Oh, averaging a five. Yeah, I'm like adding our numbers together. That that makes sense. I think that's good. So in category number one, okay. uh, I added sci-fi moment to that because I feel like a lot of what happens in movies with plot or story really relies on this like sci-fi moment that you have to inject. And a sci-fi movie, moment we're calling the use of an on-screen invention, a technology, a scientific discovery, a, a deus ex machina, a magic, a fate, destiny, folklore, cure, potion, elixir, anything that like propels our story or our protagonist to uh, go forward in the story and also probably solve some of their own problems. So what was your best sci-fi movie moment in this? Or what is your best sci-fi use of sci-fi? I'm still confused about this one. I'm thinking that it would be the the turnstile would be the best sci-fi device right um that's that's what i'm thinking is it, it it's the actual turnstile itself um would you say my favorite sci-fi thing in here the the thing that i feel like is the most locked tight hasn't uh isn't chris nolan's original idea this has been used in other uh time dilation or time shifting movies which is that what is recorded now is used as information in the future. Mm. So whenever you record a voicemail, send an email, send a text message, that is all used seemingly in real time between the past and the present, like a walkie-talkie, for you to be able to communicate. Uh, and then the past can like... Uh, it's it's hard because it doesn't, it doesn't work as cleanly in the past, which is how they solve it with the inverted uh, drop points that they leave for Andre Sater throughout the movie, which isn't bad. Uh, use of it but it's like harder to communicate backwards but basically the the present can always leave messages for the future that the future will find and especially in the day and age that we live in now of digital records of everything and digital archiving of everything um, that seems pretty believable yeah. that, that that would uh, that that would actually become something that in the future people would rely on kind of like how we do in in um, forensics you know or in in courtrooms where they go through pour over uh internal memos or, or messages to prove timelines or, or, or any of that stuff. That's my best. What's your worst? Um, I don't have one. I don't, I don't really know what is the worst. I w- like, 
that there's there's two categories on here where I can't think of like what sci-fi thing or effect that I didn't like. <laughs> I went on a, like a crazy loop of just watching videos of like, how does this make sense, right? And someone had made a point about the, and I love this, Tea Break Film Reviews um, had made a great point about the turnstile, is that if you go through the turnstile, you have to have your own oxygen with you because, right, you're not breathing in oxygen anymore, you're breathing out oxygen, which is why you need your own, because everything is reversed. Oh, that so actually makes your, better, that actually makes more even, sense than the way that they explain it on screen. Yeah, you need to bring your own oxygen with you that is in, like, your time, Right. right? The basically inverted ox. What they the line on on screen is inverted oxygen won't penetrate your lungs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually because makes a lot out. more sense that it would be that it's breathing out. Then they should have just said that that you so, shouldn't be that you'd be breathing out instead of breathing in. Exactly right. That 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 was a great point. Um, but so I'm thinking the worst part about that is um, you need your own oxygen supply in the inverted world, then the same thing would happen for all of your other bodily functions and organs. <laughs> so your blood wouldn't But you consume pump. what your well, no. bu- blood, your liver, yeah, your, but you liver bring your wouldn't own blood start. with you. You, you, you are not like you are inverted. It's kind of like being on drugs. Like you're on drugs. The world isn't on drugs. So you would bring your blood with you. You would bring your lunch with you from the other world and all this stuff. So if like you... Yeah, sh- but your bodily functions yeah, but I would feel, be inverted. I because like, you're experiencing time now and counterclockwise. But you aren't affected by it. Only the world is. That's what I mean. Basically, I, I think that what the point that you're trying to make here is, is that... Uh, rather, the point that I'm trying to make here is that you could still shit your pants. If you were inverted. <laughs> and I'm saying that you would shit it in, in Right. You would become more <laughs> constipated. But I'm saying that if you bring your shit with I, you, you're going to be able okay. to poop it out. I just want to make a point, though, that <laughs> Tea Break Film Reviews did not mention anything about uh, bodily secretions. or uh, She had really a, she made a point about your liver being being taking not absorbing w- toxins. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, so I would say that's something that tickles my Like brain. I said, I mean, I, I feel like because it's on your personal body. Um, no, but that's... because. But then why does the oxygen... Why is Because that's not internal. Right, because Whatever you toxins are yeah. already in your body are already in your body. You couldn't eat inverted food, but you could, like, process the food that you brought with you. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God, anyway. this fucking, <laughs> this fucking movie... <laughs> That's, I think I think that's it for. What do you have a? What was I, your worst? Yeah, the one element of this movie that made me decide to not dive really, really deep and try to explain this movie to everybody, uh, or even completely to myself, was the cars driving backwards. When we first watched it, immediately I kind of had a problem with. Um, I could see the SUV coming in reverse down the the highway but then when it flipped around and started going the other way to chase them i was very confused about like Seder being inverted but cat is not inverted and then when they when they swing back around and they show protagonist being the sob or whatever that is that comes in between them um i'm still a little iffy on like the full details about all of that and how the Land Rover isn't slowing down after they get out of the car. Because, um, I mean, any car in reverse would slow down 
reverse is not an easy gear for a car to be driving that fast in and all this stuff. It's just like a few things about that whole scene that are messy to me if you start okay. to think about it too, too, too clearly. But like I said, if you're experiencing it in the movie theater, the grandeur of it all is amazing and it is extremely well shot. I don't I want to get into it either because I don't want to like be here for like three hours today talking about this movie, um, although that would be very fun. But if you think about it, think about it like this with the bullet at the opera house. Right. Um, Neil actually retracts the bullet from hitting protagonist. Remember when you see the bullet going backwards mm-hmm. and that is Neil basically in the future, having gone into the past. Now he's experiencing time on a different timeline and he is inverting that bullet so that it doesn't hit protagonist. So in Sater's case, he has gone through the turnstile himself. Remember he's asking, where did you put the algorithm? So he is actually has gone, he is retracing his steps. And that is why the car is going backwards is because it's, he's retracing it. He's retracting Right, Basically. which is how he sees protagonists throw the algorithm to himself. And I get all of that. It's the actual physical movement of the car. Because even when protagonist gets in the sob and starts driving to them, he's driving forwards. Right, but in he the has car. in he because he's not like basically Seder is like inverted like twice. This is why this movie gets so messy is because they all actually have their own timelines and they have been inverted. I think it's like over six times, actually, that Neil has been inverted. Well, on screen only. Exactly. It's on screen. So you have to imagine like how many times are they being inverted? It's kind of like a Groundhog's Day. How many days is he experiencing this over and over and over again? The answer isn't really clear. I don't know. The, the, The car in reverse doesn't bother me as much because I'm just imagining it like the bullet. You know? Yeah. Like I said, it's the same thing. You don't really have a clear explanation of the bullet either. You're just supposed to be like, okay, I trust you. Please keep showing me movie. Um, which is fine. That's yeah. where we are. All right. <laughs> Category number two, um, writing and script. So okay. these are a little connected. It's basically once you have the good idea, quote unquote, you got to write a bunch of stuff to make it super, super, super believable. So you want to start? Sure. Go I ahead. gave it a five. Mm-hmm. I think that there are some really brilliant character introductions and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of like, you know, not just like telling someone, you know, who this person is, but l- rather than just showing them, um, trusting your audience to do that. And I think that they're all really great. Um, I love that the protagonist, you know, the way that we find out that he's like, you know, a straight up dude and that he's going to be the one who saves the world is right in the first scene when he, you know, wakes up from after taking the cyanide and he's being recruited right by the CIA organization, you know, you pass this test and not everyone passes. I think it's a good, like, way of character development of showing us this guy is, um, you know, a straight up dude. And I think all the other characters, too, are introduced really well. The only part to me that I felt like the script kind of was forced um, and then this is kind of the way with like a lot of Nolan's movies is like anytime it's like a heartfelt moment or it's like a convo f- between two people, specifically the lunch with Crosby. That was like a weird scene to me. I don't know if it was like they didn't have chemistry or the writing was just bad, but I like I didn't really like their interaction very much. 
And there's a couple of other places, too, where I'm like, the script is a little forced. Every time that cat is like, my son, you know, um, <laughs> that I'm like, I don't know. I'm also trying to give it the benefit of the doubt that it is an action, you know, sci-fi thriller kind of movie. Um, and a lot of it is going to be like a factual type of script and it isn't meant to have like heartfelt moments. So anyway, so I give it a five. I'm like being lenient on it. So for the first time ever, we have the same score. Mm. I also gave this a five and there are some pluses and minuses here to me. Uh, One, this script reeks of Chris Nolan. (laughs) The characters are very, very just kind of flat and set in what they're doing. Very rarely does anybody on screen have any kind of character development except for the main protagonist. And everybody else is a device to push the protagonist into having their character changes. This movie, this specific script for me is the most successful of his scripts in the way that we don't have to give a shit about any of these characters. There's the stakes are introduced in this movie in a way that the only one who feels them personally is Kat. And funny enough, that's the one that hits the worst. Like in in the, you know, my son, my son, my son throughout the whole movie is like, all right, we get it. (laughs) You know, you care about whether your son lives or dies, but this is all way, way bigger than you. So all of the stakes are set up in a way that you don't need to tie them so specifically to the actors on set, which he is like always had problems with. Yeah. In Batman, in uh, inception there are a lot of things that you're like all right i yes i get it you're so troubled your life is so you know thrown into chaos so like yeah no backgrounds time starts now the tenant hands kind of thing is all, all like really cool like very very sci-fi things and i think with the with the no no backgrounds of any of the characters you actually get to enjoy all of the characters on screen he repeats himself a little bit and especially with his characters everybody's kind of blunt nobody has time for anything past this thing you can't get the sense throughout the movie if cat is a love interest for the protagonist or not and i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing uh, the exposition in the science scene is like really straight up uh, exposition when he goes to see the the scientist. Yeah, you know what? That was also that's like. But how else are you gonna you right. you once again like we were talking about in the first movie is that every sci-fi film needs a big five ten minute scene where there's just some scientist or some wizard throwing the whole thing at the protagonist who now becomes the avatar for the audience on the screen and you like have to have that and once you have the ominous music underneath it it kind of matters more but i even love his reaction to it i have this in in one of my best quotes also the scientist goes on this whole huge explanation and his answer to her is i'm sorry i'm not seeing armageddon here right is kind of it's kind of the right response. He's like, all right, lady, you're so scared about all this stuff, but I'm not seeing this huge danger that you're talking about. And I kind of really appreciate that happening. What else? Uh, Montage explained during the heist. He relies on that a lot. 
you know, he doesn't give you the heist up front, but then you see the heist unfolding and you're like, oh, that's why they had this thing in the other scene, which he does constantly. Uh, And I wrote down here NPC dialogue. (laughs) A lot of this script relies on like straight up PlayStation NPC dialogue where you like walk up to a character and you hit the X to talk to the there's like, oh, you showed up. We've been waiting for you for a year. Um, Yeah, I get I get that. And I I feel like that is nowhere more strongly uh, than in in the Crosley scene scene where he's with Michael Caine. And I actually found out Michael Caine was not allowed to read the whole script. Michael Caine was brought in, um, who is a longtime friend and frequent collaborator with uh, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan insisted on not giving him all of it. Mm. They gave him the scene. And I feel like, yeah, he's he's not hitting the right tone in there. Yeah, that even the way it was shot, I don't know. I know that's our next category. Uh, that that to me, I, I didn't really like the way it was shot. I didn't really like their dialogue very much. It was like kind of stiff. You know, yeah. What do you do? And when you have a movie like this that is so complex and so rich, there's so many theories that are happening. You know, what kind of script is it supposed to have? That's kind of why I gave it a five is because I do feel like the script is just kind of pushing the movie along. That is not the most important part of this movie. It's actually why I gave performances a higher number even because I feel like a lot of the statements and a lot of the script, like a lot of their their lines are so like factual that it's kind of hard. It must be as an actor hard to convey sentences like that right so um yeah i I see what you know i i definitely see what you're saying let's move on to best and worst so in here i'm lining up dialogue or quote the best bit of dialogue in this movie to me (laughs) is when protagonist gets invited to satyr's dinner and satyr's like how would you like to die and and this dude says old which is just it, it, there's there's a very good use of comedy in this movie yeah. in just the right spots and like for the most part it works out really 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 well. So that's my best dialogue quote. Uh, my worst one is when they're in the shipping container and um, Kat has been hit with this inverted bullet and her stomach is basically ripped open, and Neil is explaining the entirety of uh, you know if Sater gets this and then the algorithm then he activates it and then it's end of play, and the first thing she says is, including my son. <laughs> it's like. Once again, I get it. Your your interest in this in, is in your son, but we're talking about the planet ending. And you say, including my son? That's... Yes, in- including your son. And I know. It, that kind of was my worst as well. Um, that was definitely my, my, my worst as well. However... I think that that is specifically in there so many times. The reason she keeps bringing up my son, my son, my son is because Neil is her son. Okay. Now you're getting into like fan theories. No. Why does he even care about keeping her alive? That's his mom. I mean, he has to care about keeping her alive because they still need her for the plan. She hasn't killed Seder yet. They do. But I, I which arguably Neil would even already know if he is, you know, the person we think he is. Uh, no, away from being her son. I mean, like being deeply involved with protagonists throughout this journey. He would know that she has to go kill Sater for all of this to work out. 
I did read also that people thought that Neil was Max grown up with a different name. And I also read that people thought that Ives... Maximilian. So they took Neil from it. People also said that they think that Ives is Crosley. Oh. That that's why he knows... Uh, about all of this stuff, uh, because even part of the whole prote- uh, about, about the tenant program is that people not know about each other or not know details about right. each other. So it's very plausible that all of these people have different names and, and they're coming through these uh, these multiple inversions to get to where they need to be in time. So my best is a, a Neil quote. What's happened's happened. It's an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world. It's not an excuse for doing nothing. I think that's just a great quote to live by. Yeah, it speaks to several depths. So I actually wrote down for my worst was the don't try to understand it, feel it, the scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I read another fan theory that she is the scientist. Right, that creates the algorithm based on her research. And now I'm like, all right, well, maybe it's still like kind of a bad quote. But it's still a bad quote. It's still a bad quote because, like, you're, he's just saying, like, up front in the movie is like, hey, like, don't go too crazy with Come this. Come on. Just watch the movie, all right? Come on. <laughs> you paid your fifteen fifty. <laughs> Shut up and watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, anyway, I don't know. Are, are movies still fifteen fifty? I don't know. I don't know what we pay for movies now. Sixteen ninety. <laughs> anyway. Okay. I'm going to talk about the movie details real quick as we get into direction, cinematography, and editing because this is all now we're doing an ultra modern movie, which means that it has been affected by the pandemic, by uh, COVID. So Tenet was started to be made and significantly finished before the pandemic hit. But there were some things that had to happen after the pandemic already happened. One of them was the editing a lot of this movie was edited in Chris Nolan's personal editing suite at home and also uh, abroad. So he was working remotely. The good thing is, is that uh, Chris Nolan loved to use this effects team that's in based in the UK and he's based in California. So he was used to working remotely to begin with. So this movie... Uh, came out on September 3rd, 2020, which was a big old rigmarole between Chris Nolan and Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers also got into a little bit of trouble because of um, like Wonder Woman 1984 and the Zack Snyder uh, cut. All of these things are being really, really affected by the pandemic, even with Warner Brothers releasing a bunch of stuff through HBO Max to do, you know, uh, coinciding releases. Tenet didn't get there in the eyes of the studio and they kind of held it against him or against the movie um and i i mean i I, we're gonna have to talk about warner brothers eventually because they've been making a lot of missteps in my opinion with their movie um what do you call that with their movie company with their uh with the stuff that they put out so this movie apparently grossed just over 350 million on an international level on a 200 million dollar budget which according to warner brothers is a failure yeah which is bullshit to me, because one, like, it's just in the wake of Marvel doing the numbers that they did with the MCU, everybody's trying to get that same thing. And you don't, like, people don't understand that that's a phenomenon that just worked because all of the pieces were there. And as soon as they were messing up any of those pieces, they reconfigured and moved forward. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make 22 movies in 11 years without the whole thing making absolute sense right and 
Warner Brothers failed on the the DC Cinematic Universe a lot in this way. And I think that they failed Chris Nolan by trying to push this movie to be released uh, internationally in the middle of a pandemic. And you got to like accept what you got. I can't believe that this movie already almost made 100% profit back. But still is a failure in their eyes. But still is a failure in their eyes. Because it's embarrassing. Because they want it to be blockbusters. They want something the entire family can go to. And it's like, we're just in this age of movies where if it's not something that everyone in the whole family can watch and go to theater and see Godzilla, you know, versus King Kong kind of deal. Like, you're talking about art over superficial, um, you know, unoriginal ideas. And that's, that's what why we always had Chris Nolan for, was that you could get... The Dark Knight. Yeah. You know, know, you get The Dark Knight, which everybody got behind. Yeah. Uh, this dude won an Oscar for it. You know what yeah. I mean? Posthumously, but like, are we going to have a better Joker? No. You know? <laughs> I like, don't think so. <laughs> so be happy you got it. I know. You know, you watch movies from the 70s and 80s and how artistic they were, how the cinematography is just so different. You just trusted your audience to want to see creativity that way and I just feel like nowadays it's just a kind of lost people don't um, care about it as much anymore it's a, it's a quite a shame yeah I, over the last couple of years I read that Warner Brothers had some huge shakeups at the top because of mismanagement of projects mismanagement of like problems that happen between cast and crew uh, oh. so yeah. I don't know man Warner Brothers needs to needs to figure it out uh, okay, so on earnestly to this category. Okay. Uh, written and directed by Chris Nolan. He was kind of in charge of a lot of it, and he trusts his crew a lot, which I really, really like. Uh, talk to me about direction, cinematography, and editing, Ali Kulata. All right. For direction, cinematography, I gave it a six. Uh, there's some really great moments, my favorite of which that I think you said was not your favorite was the explanation of the Oslo Freeport. Um, I think that that was quite genius cutting and directing. So I'm going to tell you why. What do you mean? I'm sorry. What? You talked about like the montage when they're like putting together the heist, basically, that you didn't like Which heist? There are seven heists in this movie. The first time when we're going to the Oslo airport, they're going to crash the plane into the hangar and that the two of them are going to go into the... Right, the, the gas filled chamber, right, to go and to get the Goya painting. So I like that 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 you see the three different perspectives. So the first one is like the school between Cat and protagonist. The second one is you see um, the protagonist with Neil at the airport, and then next you see Neil scoping the Freeport safes. All like while protagonist is explaining what they're going to do, these. Three shots are used interchangeably to show how they're going to put together the heist. And I just thought it was really, really great editing. I loved it. Then what? Then they t- they kind of do it a later again um, when they're going to... They do it when they're, when they're now inverted. He kind of uses the same device. It's similar, but it's not exactly the same. It's not like th- the three shots. I, I just really like the editing in the movie. There's a time in the movie when we first saw this where we were halfway through, he just goes through the inverted chamber. And I remember thinking to myself, I hope the movie's not over yet. 
And I think it's because it's like really well paced. And I'm not a I am not that much of a fan of long movies. And this is a long movie that I was like, I don't want this to end right now because I want to find out what happens. So I think like overall the coloring is really interesting. I wrote down a couple of my other favorite scenes. I think like the bungee scene is really well shot, really smooth. Uh, I think that the scenes of them in Italy and in Vietnam are really beautiful. The coloring, like the filter they use on some of those shots looks, it reminded me of like a Gucci ad. I thought it was gorgeous. And then the uh, plutonium plot is also shot in a different color. And I I really like that one too. I, I think that Nolan's strong points in his movies is directing cinematography you know that this is like this is where he shines sweet Are you, I'm sorry you gave it a six I gave it a six so high score um, okay so I originally gave this a four but I, I think I'm gonna I'm thinking I'm gonna whittle it up to a five because I'm being a tiny bit unfair but it's because kind of like what you just said I think Chris Nolan relies on heists a lot in his movies which we explained is the whole um affinity for spy movies you kind of need that but he does it a lot and exactly even that the whole use of we're explaining the heist while showing you three scenes that are preparing the heist and then it all comes together he relies on that a lot he's done it in every movie he's done yeah, my big question about it is like how many days were they scoping it? Because he always does that and it's like quite seamless of right. them telling the story. But it had to be like over a couple of days. At the very least, right? it's an airport. But then at nighttime, you see Neil and him are at the Oslo and it looks like it's nighttime. So that was like, I was like, wait a minute, is this the same day or is this over many days? Right. Yeah, you may never know. So the landscapes are beautiful. Uh, everywhere that they shoot here, and one of the things that I actually do appreciate a lot about this movie is that a lot of it is shot on location. Mm. Um, it's so fucking fast. The whole thing is fast. Everybody's talking fast. All the cuts are fast. Even throughout the whole movie, it actually never feels like there's a relaxed pace anywhere in this movie. Um, there's no time for you as the audience to ask what the fuck. What's going on here? They don't care if you get it or not. Uh, you just have to go through it. It's a lot of short scenes. Um, the Freeport sequence is probably the best whole thing in this movie. It is really, really well put together. There's something that I like about this movie that's actually a, a trend that's happening in movies in the last bunch of years, which is that it's not US-centric. It's not America-centric. Protagonist is a CIA agent, but he's almost the only American in the whole movie? Neil. Neil's not American. Neil's British. Oh. They meet in Mumbai. Um, mm. The only other, I feel like, straight up American accent that we hear is. Um, oh, Mahir. Uh, Mahir, the right? Car, the Himesh, car, the Himesh plane. Patel, right? Who, who helps them to accomplish a couple of the heists that they have to do, which is also like at the end of it, they go back to the yacht in Vietnam so that. Cat can kill Sater, and this is before protagonist even meets Mahir. Right. And he's helping it. So is he inverted already at this point? Or did they reach back and call him? And that's actually his first heist. And then he's experiencing the airplane thing as already knowing protagonist, but protagonist doesn't know he knows him. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think a lot of the movie is that. Right? Okay. Honestly, I think a lot of the movie is people being inverted into time and then experiencing the past moving forward. Exactly. And the only one who's not privy to any of this is protagonist because <laughs> he's actually just experiencing his life right. <laughs> and he needs to use all of this information to then set up the program yes. later on yeah Oof. i know um <laughs> it gets a five because i think chris nolan is repeating himself okay 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 <laughs> i think he's repeating himself he's definitely using some of his like tools and tricks but I just think that he did a great job. It is the best use of yeah. all of those tools and tricks so far. And the montage scenes, like, they work, you know? But um, The music. Amazing. I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, it's going to be 20 minutes by itself. Okay, right, so, so best. This is scene. Best scene. So this is Oslo the best in, in, uh, so this is either the best scene in the movie that you, like, super, super enjoyed yeah. or the worst scene in the movie that you're like, is, did this need to be here? Okay. I got it. Oslo Airport, like all of it, hands down, yeah. you know, um, in, in both timelines. <laughs> I know. I was going to I was just going to say that because I, 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 I also have this as my best scene. And the reason is, is the first like real hard look you get at forward timeline versus yes. inverted. Uh, we antagonist. haven't even like really discussed the fact that like cause since this is the I mean, I guess this is more technical when we get to it later. But like. This man had to direct these scenes forwards, backwards. You know, what it would be like reverse. What it would be like this. Like, what a, what a lot of, that's a lot of work. It is. <laughs> For only like a few scenes. Of work. We, will, yeah. we will talk about that when we get uh, into this next category. So my worst scene, I think, is actually when he beats Cat. When um, Seder beats Cat. You think it was technically not shot well? I don't think it's necessary. It doesn't help the plot. We already know that Sater is a bad guy. He already threatens to beat her when they're on the plane with the, I'm not, I'm on the boat with the, his belt. He threatens protagonist many times. Ken, Kenneth Brenner is scary on screen. I just feel like out of all of the shots, just didn't even think it needed to be there. It's like, I, I don't even understand why they had that in the, scene he's already like threatening her in the car right because right. then after that scene they get into the inverted car and then he shoots her so I, I just or he shot her beforehand and then he goes back inverted whatever but i i just like yeah that was that was my least favorite scene that i was like do you really need this it's funny because i i i see where you're coming from and i also my my least favorite scene was the whole lunch with uh Michael Caine. Okay. And it's and it sucks because both scenes I do see what they're adding to the movie. Michael Caine is is who sets up the whole introduction uh for protagonist to go meet Cat and get through Seder, which is like, you know, what the whole movie hinges on. So th- there's a very important reason for that scene to be there, but I don't think it was executed well. And it's kind of the same thing that I feel like you're talking about with the with the Andre and Kat scene is that that scene is supposed to show that she doesn't have what it takes to shoot him because of desperation. But that act is what makes her angry enough to shoot him later. So I see what they're like trying to put across in that scene, but I agree with you that like they kind of already give you her being like terrified of right him. at right at her wits end at her the end of her rope with him and really not being able to deal with it. 
I want to bring up the the Crosby lunch because um, that was also I was like torn between writing these two. And it was, since we are talking about directing, there was a couple like over the shoulder shots with Kane and um, John David Washington. John David Washington. <laughs> uh, and I'm always like trying to look this out, like peek for this in movies. Is like, are they actually doing the shot together, or is that a stand-in? And there's a couple over the shoulder shots that just didn't look that good. I want to believe that they both were there in this scene, but I'm like a little skeptical about like I don't know if Kane was there for this dude for all of this dude's you know lines. So yeah, I, I that also that that was a, that was weirdly shot. I agree with you on that. All right, moving on. Moving on. Sweet performances. So this is a category that almost completely looks at the actors. Um, the director's a little bit involved in here because you know he directs the scenes, and you could be left to wonder could they have asked more from the actors, etc. But for the most part, it's about what actors are bringing to the characters on the screen. This one was hard for me. But I tried to be nice because then I thought about it and I was like, what are they dealing with? What kind of script do they have? This movie is really, really fast. Like what you were talking about, there's not a lot of room to breathe and you only have like so much time in this scene to convey this emotion. So I did give them all a six, um, all of the actors, all of the you know main cast. I gave them all a six just because I, I feel like with what they had, they all got the point across, and they were all very, very believable to me. To me. Cool. Uh, I gave it a four <laughs> because there's a lot of physicality in this category. I was very torn about the fact that all the actors had physically demanding things put in front of them. One of the main things that Chris Nolan said about this in general um, when casting the actor was that they needed somebody who would be very physically fit and when they interviewed um john david washington who's denzel washington's son who was also a semi-professional football player for several years and an incredible athlete uh that mattered to christopher nolan a lot and one in their like one of their first interviews <laughs> john david washington says that like upon meeting christopher nolan and them talking about the role he's like um this is gonna be hard <laughs> and John David Washington was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I know. And then they got into filming. And he's like, I had no idea. <laughs> this goes back to the point that I made in our very first episode that sometimes um, some things are sacrificed with actors because they want something else. Uh, and this one I feel like is a big deal that they wanted somebody who you've never really heard about. Uh, you may have known, and we know him now because of Black Klansman, but that came out like right, at, right before this. And there was almost no way to know that he was going to break and be a great actor um, before this. And he's kind of unknown for a mm-hmm. $200 million movie. And I don't think he's a great actor. I think he's all right. I think he's a little wooden. He's kind of just like straight through de- delivering the lines, trying to get like the intensity, like, yes, this is, this is how I should be standing. This is how I, this blah, blah, blah. And his physical scenes are incredible. And I found out in my research that all of the actors did their stunts. Almost, wow. almost all of the stunts were done That's by awesome. the actual actors. Uh, John David Washington did a lot of it himself, including uh, bungee jumping off of this building, wow. which he found to be extremely difficult because he's very afraid of heights. And that was one of the hardest things for him. Uh, it was also physically demanding learning all the fight choreography forwards and backwards, which we'll talk about in the next um, category. Maybe, though, the reason he's kind of stiff. I thought about this, too, because of all of the cast, I felt like he definitely is the most green. He's like not as much an actor as everyone else. But then mm-hmm. part of me was like, maybe it's on purpose. Right. 
because he's like green in the story. He, this is all happening to him the first time. So I was like, maybe he's actually stiff and kind of doesn't know what the hell is going on throughout the entire movie. And maybe like that's a choice. Like that's on purpose. Yeah. So that's my fight for him. That's my, maybe let's keep going. Um, I, God, Michael Caine, he's really the, the roughest part of this for me. He's the hardest, um, you don't like him performance on talking screen with his mouth open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Michael Caine's like also always eating for some reason. Um, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, he's an incredible actor. I've loved everything that Kenneth Branagh has been in. I've seen him in so many things. One of the very first things that I saw him in, which we talked about a while ago, was he was um, the bad guy in Wild Wild West, where he plays uh, a defeated uh, southern general who didn't like the outcome of the war and thinks he can reverse it. And he's always been really, really good at doing departures from himself and also being like a like Shakespearean level actor who can who can really do drama and nuance and all of this. And there are entire times in this movie that you forget that that's Kenneth Branagh. Um, he really dip- disappears into it. Um, one of the, the fun things about this movie was that all the actors had to learn their lines backwards because everything has to be filmed one way and then it has to be filmed again the other way so that you can show the inverted and 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 not inverted action of each action sequence. Um, and all of the all of the actors had to learn their lines backwards by pre-recording them and then from matching the mouth movements. And Kenneth Branagh had to do that in a fake Russian accent. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, I wrote I made a comment of I wrote down the overdubbing in that scene was really cool. You're talking about and then he goes to the inverted turn turn style, but he's in He's all like of it, in both of them. In all of it, on the radio, um, oh, yeah. when, when John uh, when John David Washington is listening back to it in the sob, like all of it oh, so cool. is just really really interesting uh, from that standpoint. But you know, people doing other people's accents is that like is British or North Irish Kenneth Brenna allowed to do a Russian accent on screen anymore? Are we doing that? Um, Are we still making Russians the bad guys in movies in well, 2021? You, you can always make a Russian a bad guy um, in a movie. I don't know. I, I think he had a great performance. He's he pretty did. scary. He, He's he like scary. didn't even have to say anything in some of the scenes. And yeah. you just look in his face and you're like, yeah, I'm not messing with that, mm-hmm. that guy. So down to my really goods. Uh, I thought Priya was an incredibly nuanced character. I love how she spoke. I love the gravity with which like she performed the the words that she chose and everything. Mm-hmm. I really liked her kind of being like, hey, this is business. Yeah. You know? Where this isn't this isn't you, this isn't me, this is what needs to be. It's money. Yeah. Uh, well not money, but like this is future mm. or not. And it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about how any of us feel about this. It's about what needs to be done. Mm. And I I got that off of her really well with also like that whole thing of like her pulse never probably rises above 120, uh, kind of in the same way with Sater. Uh, um, and then I'm saving him for the end because I can't, I don't team even Edward? know. Oh my God, Are team, you Edward. team Edward. I am, I am now team Edward. <laughs> um, wow. He rocks. Robert Pattinson, who like turned out to be an actor. Who knew? Cedric. Yeah, Cedric Diggory. <laughs> Cedric was dead. Port- by- Cedric. <laughs> uh, first first on screen death in Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> Nails it again. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot get over the 
the the commitment and the confidence with which he he plays Neil. Neil is incredible throughout the whole thing. He's like he you see him be knowing. He like knows what's happening ish. He's like waiting for you to explain it for your benefit, but he knows. Uh, I also think that there's a, a, there's some fun stuff going on in this. Um, in some of his scenes, he's kind of wearing goofy clothing. Mm-hmm. He's wearing like stuff that's not like he wears like this like linen suit in in Mumbai, which is like what you're supposed to wear as like a British guy. But that's like a little bit like dated. Um, in one of the scenes where he's talking to the protagonist, he's wearing kind of like 90s jeans. They're like too baggy and he's wearing like the wrong T-shirt. And it looks like he's wearing stuff for the wrong decade that he's in. And I wonder if that's like this really mm-hmm. low key production choice to make him a man out of time a little bit. I think it's because, again, I think he is Maximilian, Maximilian and then took the letters. And also because the, the, the age that he is would be the, the age 20 years later. Like, so he it gets inverted back to when he is... A he child. gets inverted back, yeah, 20 years, which would... And then he ages through. But then it's this whole theory of, like, there are three of him in that timeline. Right. Um, there's but the yeah, one that we he, know is helping. There's the one we don't know is helping, and, and then there's the child. child. Uh, he has he has actually the most timelines in this movie because he has gone back and forth through this inverted turnstile. Right. And when he even at the very end of the movie, he doesn't make it in time to unlock the door. He goes inverted again to refix it. So we so so we really don't even know what planet this guy is on. <laughs> but I do love the comfort in his language. You know, his he's all knowing, um, you know, character. And can we like note a bit that Danny and I, in order to do some research about Paddington, we just watched The Lighthouse. And yeah, which I'd wanted to watch anyway because of the, the director, Ed- Eggers, yeah. um, Robert Eggers. Robert, Robert Eggers. But anyway, he was fantastic in that movie. And so, yeah, I'm I'm rooting for Paddington. I'm really I'm really hoping that he's going to become something super great he's already on a really great path right now in his career we're gonna talk about this much more in depth as this as this podcast goes on but the 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 concept of an actor surviving a saga is a big deal in Mm sci-fi you know what i mean like everybody has to take breaks and everybody has to figure out where they're gonna shake out like i mean really in in um lord of the rings there's like a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Hugo Weaving and Liv Tyler and Orlando Bloom kind of don't get on the great end of the history of this later. You know, Elijah Wood took kind of like a big break and then started doing weird ass shit, which I feel like is the same playbook. Um, Robert Pattinson, Elijah Wood and Daniel Radcliffe all had to like, yo, I'm going to be real fucking weird for a few years. Yeah, so I don't get typecasted. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to see how we shake out uh, in all of these things. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I said, I mean, it's it's a hard thing to just peg who comes out of sagas surviving well or not. But, you know, Pattinson, man, for a really long time, I I wrote him off as this is Edward. We're never going to see this man act. And... In reading a lot of this, his process is incredible. He mm. really wants to get caught up in the feeling of it, his uh, pre-ritual, getting you know how he works into getting into his characters, how he makes the decisions. It's it's good stuff, and it's really comes out in the lighthouse, and it really really comes out in this film. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Best and worst performance now. What is your best and worst? I have two. Okay. The first one, and I think this is kind of an obvious one, is um, John David Washington fighting himself. I think incredibly physically demanding scene backwards, forwards. I mean, that must have been shot a thousand times. And I think he does a great job. It's kind of a clunky scene. I'm talking about when he's at the Oslo airport right. and, and himself goes through the inverted uh, turnstile. And you just see him. You, you do believe that is himself fighting because of the way it's just... It's like he knows every single move that he's going to make. Even to the point of shooting the gun away from his own head... To empty the gun, right? Which is fantastic. I mean, that's that's something that you read. They don't they don't directly give that. But to when you, you on see the scene over, right. you do notice he kind of does shoot it away. Yeah, he's just trying to empty the gun out so that it can't be used. Right. I I just I, I think will he say did a great I do wanna, I do want to let everybody know that Ali straight up called that the first time we were watching the movie. Uh, she's like, "That's him. He's fighting himself. He's like, none of his skin is showing." And I'm like, <gasps> "Yeah, I did." I Holy totally shit! Before I read Allie. anything, very first time yeah, watching the movie, dude. I was like, ah, I was like, oh my I think god! That's him. And, and then, it was. and then it comes back around. And you're like, oh shit! I was like, right. um, very yeah. good call from the culotta over here. <laughs> so I, I think that that was a great scene, and that's why I'm excited to see uh, John David Washington's career. You know, I, I'm hoping big things for him. Maybe he'll be an action star. Who knows? My other favorite performance is when Cat unlocks the door when she's in the inverted <laughs> she's in the inverted car going backwards and you're like and, he, and and protagonist is trying to rescue her mm-hmm. and she can't get the door unlocked and she's the tallest woman on the planet and she's in the back seat and somehow across the car unlocks the door with her leg <laughs> that's it's a ridiculous moment but i wrote it down because watching it i was like God damn, this woman's really tall. <laughs> she is quite tall. Um, the producer on this movie is Emma Thomas, who is Chris, Christopher Nolan's wife, IRL. And she has produced a lot of his films, and she's very good at it. Um, she was the one who told him that they should hire her. Um, what is it? Elizabeth Debicki? Mm-hmm. And kind of like suggested that, look, you're never probably going to have a six foot five woman on camera again. Um, let's not hide her. So they decided to, in her costuming, to give her long skirts and all this stuff to make her look like she's bigger than everybody else. And they put her in heels in almost every scene, even though she's already taller than everybody. I was watching a behind the scenes of how they're filming the the highway sequence. And she gets out of a car, the, the SUV, she gets out of the car and stands up in that red uh, suit that she's wearing. And her chin is above the head of, like, most of the crew who's around her. You just get, like, this this impression. Of just, like, she unlocked the door so, from the back so seat to the, the driver's side of yeah. the door. Good for her. It's going to be her and Uma Thurman at the end. <laughs> I love um, it. It is great. So my best performance is Robert Pattinson. I think okay. top to bottom. He's just the absolute right thing it's very funny because even in, in uh he talks about it in, in an interview there's a lot of physical scenes in it and there's like this one scene that neil and protagonist are running across a field or, or, or oh uh, is this at the end uh, i think so they're running across something together and chris nolan wanted to do like 30 takes of it 
And John David Washington is an ex-athlete, so he was just like, boom, jumps up, sprints across, uh, and just comes back. And is like, all right, again, boom, sprints across, and like Pattinson is just like, I need a minute, please, I need a minute. Like I can't. It's like John David's like, what's up, man? It's all good. Uh, he could just do all the physicality with absolutely no problems. Um, what's your worst performance? Uh, the lunch. The lunch. It's mine also. Michael Caine is yeah. so. Uh, out of place in yeah, this. Yeah, what a bummer. What a I bummer. I do love him, but just didn't like that scene. <laughs> I don't know. I know, it's rough. Mm-hmm. It's rough. It's rough. Okay, so moving on. Where are we? Production, Production. and set design. Mm-hmm. So uh, the producer produced the movie, right? They made a bunch of choices of how this movie should look and how it should play out. And uh, for the most part, not for the most part, I love the choices in this movie. Go ahead. Six. You too. Six? Yeah. Uh, it. A lot of this was all practical effects. Almost all of it, I think, right? I don't think they really used C- CGI. It is, uh, and we'll get into more of this in a second, but just a little bit of trivia. It is the least number of digital visual effects that Chris Nolan has ever used in a movie. And it is also, I think, lower than any other action movie of like the last 10 years job well done um the the car scene i mean that that's ridiculous that must have been so expensive to do um i think it said like 30 33 days or something to shoot it right there was a lot of stuff involved in that yeah they shut down like an almost five mile stretch of highway in estonia for over a month they had like 200 plus stunt drivers they were adamant about doing this all for real it was so important that they make it look good chris nolan is coming off of flipping on 18 wheeler (laughs) in in uh the dark knight right which is still talked about they did that for real and the same stunt driver is involved in this movie the same thing with the plane they yes. really did that. They bought a plane because it was cheaper to buy a plane than to make miniatures of all Amazing. of it. Which uh, we were watching the scene and I was like, yo, this all looks so good. It really looks like that plane hit that Jeep hard and like <laughs> moved it out of the way. And we found out that it is the same driver driving the plane who drove the 18 wheeler. He had to get a special license and training to be able wow. to just drive this plane into an unused hangar. Oh. All of it was real. It makes they me filmed like it even all more. of it. I know. It's that's what that like that's why this gets a six and that's yeah. what saves this movie a lot is the homework they did. Yeah. Behind the scenes before this movie started, they did excellent work. Okay, and then let's also talk about and help me with the location. I I'm keep forgetting where they are at the end when they're trying to find the last piece of the algorithm and stop the uh, bomb going off. Where are they? What's the scene called? It's a tunnel underneath in his hometown. Stalsk 12. Okay. The scene when they're at Stalsk 12 is also shot incredibly well. The buildings exploding and then imploding and then backwards. and I I think that all of those effects were fantastic. So this movie has one of the highest number of extras that has ever been in any movie. They use real 3,500 people in the auditorium scene at the beginning of the movie. Oh, I forgot about that scene, too. It's so good. It is a real decommissioned building that was used in the Olympics a bunch of years ago. They had to do like a bunch of stuff to modernize the building and make it look good. Oh, because it's it not was the in... actual Kiev Opera House? No. Okay. It's, um, it's a stand-in for it that they had to like paint and do some remodeling and replace a bunch of light bulbs and get it up to like a usable oh, they broke condition. The cello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
And then at the end of the film, there's uh, several hundred people involved that are the cal- ca- cavalry Incredible. that comes to the rescue. Uh, so this was a very specific casting call that they were looking for. They knew that this was very going to be very physically demanding. They knew that they wanted it to look like an all-out military siege. So they asked for extras for, for all of the fighters uh, had to be ex-military mm. because they were going to be wearing actual military gear for 10 hours a day. Wow. Includes like face shields and full fatigues and heavy weapons and all this stuff. And they basically, in order to like not have to deal with actors... They wanted to get all ex-military people so that they would like understand what was necessary of them. Also, it was like very physically demanding because it was like a, a dusty, dirty, um, you know, hilly area with like a lot of loose rocks. Brilliant. And there was also a lot of improvised um, pyrotechnics put throughout. So they had to tell people, OK, you can only run this way and run that way. And all of it was was filmed with uh, ex-military people. You know, this is a very expensive movie. Extras, costumes, uh, effects, you know, all the practical effects, explosives, cars, vehicles, everything. The bungee jump. I didn't know that they actually did that. Yeah. I loved that scene, too. It was so seamless. It looks so easy. See, it looks like I could just put a bungee on and just jump up a building. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was just so good. And so definitely, I, I, that's why I like Nolan's films. Yeah, everybody, everybody behind the scenes did their homework on this. This all looks good. Sater's yacht is perfect. You believe his, like, obscene, obscene wealth. Uh, all the set design is like really, really solidly done. The 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 Freeport holding cages with the artwork and the documentation and the hallways, all of that's really, really good. Um, oh God, yeah, six for sure on this. What's your what's your best technical element in this? So definitely the the car scene for me was the was the top. That that was really cool. Awesome. Love it, Chase. So the technical the best technical element to me in this movie is the fight scenes. I think that the fight choreography is incredible in this movie, especially with, you know, the the demands of an inverted antagonist mm. in any of it. I think it's it brings up so many questions, and I I, I I didn't hear John David Washington talking about it working with the with the fight choreographers and the stunt people who are supposed to be extremely experienced and know what's going on. Uh, at all times and how to make everything look a certain way, there was stuff that they were all learning Mm -hmm. as this was progressing, which I find very interesting because, you know, they really pushed into brand new territory on this movie, which I'm, uh, which Christopher Nolan does a lot. And then, you know, he's always kind of stuck with the, oh yeah, he was the first to do this. And now it looks old, you know, with memento, the amnesia leading to not trusting people to, uh, the whole seriousness that he brings to Batman, uh, and the dark Knight that leads to kind of like the DC vibe of movie making inception. You watch inception now with all the movie tricks of like scenes being flipped around and buildings being upside down and all this stuff. Now we see that so much in movies like Dr. Strange and everything Mm. that it looks like it was made 12 years ago. Yeah. I wonder if any directors now are going to copy this whole reverse time looping uh, or rather time. uh, Yeah. Things shot in reverse like that. Um, I'm trying to think of another movie where things are like kind of shot in reverse. Can you think of any? Only when it's like for the sake of actual reversing time, like Superman um, or, or I mean, The Flash does but it. But those in, always in look so like, those looked 
those look overdubbed. They look like they're backwards. You know what I mean? Like yeah. whereas this is actually shot him right shooting shot everything backwards. backwards. Yeah, I think uh, shot forwards backwards. <laughs> yeah. So weird one here, and this is I know this is even weirder because we're doing this uh, as only the second ever podcast. I don't have a bad technical element. I don't either. I didn't. I couldn't come up with something that was like badly done. The cars are great. The action is great. The costumes are great. The choices that they make with all of the effects are great. I don't have not one single thing that I was like, that looks what blah. a bad choice yeah. from the production team. <laughs> I don't know. The broken cello in the beginning. <laughs> <Broken> <laughs> he cello. stepped right in the middle or it was a bass or something. That's the only. But there isn't though. There isn't though. It's really done so well. Okay, so here we are on to our last category. The very last category is effects and sound. I don't think we're going to take a lot of time on effects because when we just said that most of this was done practically, there's only 280 effects, uh, special effects in the whole film. To kind of put that in perspective, I saw this fun bit of trivia on IMDb. The movie only contains about 280 special effects shots, which is less than most modern romantic comedies. Mm. This is also the, the lowest number of visual effects for Chris Nolan himself. The Dark Knight had 650 visual effects shots. Dark Knight Rising had 450. In had about 500 and Dunkirk was over 400 so they got away with doing a lot of this movie uh, the old way what was the number again 280 visual wow. effects shots yeah wow that's incredible uh, that building that they throw that they blow up and then invertedly yes. blow up uh, is very fascinating that was also very very lightly done with CGI they built two buildings uh, that were a third of the size, and they set up cameras to match the camera angles perfectly, and they blew one up in the middle, and they blew one up at the top, right. and then they composited the shots because they were the same angle. So it looks like the same building gets blown up and then inverted, inverted. It's incredible. Uh, at once. There was only one thing in which they didn't even want to do, but one of the, one of the shots, uh, because of the dust debris, got so bad, they had to digitally clean up that one shot. Oh. Uh, wow. But they tried so, so, so hard to do the entire thing uh, And practical. I think it's great. So for effects and sound, I really am focusing a lot on sound since we know already that there weren't a lot of effects used. And I gave it a six. I think the music, yes, okay. What you mentioned is correct about maybe the balance was a little off. Funny enough, it didn't really bother me that much in this movie. Um, I did have a, <laughs> a teenage student of mine bring it up when we were talking about the movie, and he was like, oh, I hated the sound. I thought it was really off. You know, and it, it didn't bother me, funny enough. I thought the music enhanced the scenes, and this is um, Ludwig Gorson. Am I saying that right? He's a phenom. Who knows? I think I, I think <laughs> you're saying it right. L what is it? Ludwig, Ludwig, Gorenson, Gorenson, Goranson. Someone needs to correct us on this. Yes, I'm. What any, an incredible any, um, Nordic folks out there, please help I me. I mean, he's incredible. He really is incredible. Uh, obviously, love the music from The Mandalorian, but just the way that he, and he also did the Black Panther too, which I feel like Won I need a rewatch. Yeah, I need a rewatch on that one, but. I just want to hear the, the, my favorite musical moments of this movie. When the movie starts, 
the music starts. Mm-hmm. It's just boom. It kicks you off, and now you're in this opera house, and there's this whole huge, you know, thing that's happening with the agents, and all the people are now passed out, and that is just so tense, and the music really enhances it. Number two is when they're in the safe room, and they and the. Oh God! The music just sucks up all of the yeah. air. With, it's inc- as the doors close, the yes. music just like is gone. You God, it's, and it's so, so uncomfortable. Good. And then you finally, and then now they're in the turnstile, and then the music kicks back on again. And well, when when um, protagonist from the from the future into the past. <laughs> inverted protagonist. Inverted protagonist. He, then the music kicks back in, and there's just so much anticipation. I just loved it. I I think the music was amazing. I actually like the overdubbing in this movie a lot. In scenes where you're hearing Sater uh, speaking present and also having the inverted. Uh, language. I thought the overdubbing is really well. It, you're a little bit of like what's happening, but you understand everything. It's clear. And I also love the ambient sound in this movie matches the music really well. It's something I've noticed that Gorson does in his in his uh, scoring, where he's able to use ambient sounds to make them sound more like music. And I think that he has a really great balance of new electronic sounds with with acoustic instruments. And that's just like, I, I'm excited for this person's future because he's really, he's really pushing the genre. So I'm going to, I'm sorry, did you give me your score? Six. Six. Okay. So I'm going to just echo and build on what you're saying. I agree. The 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 effects aren't like a huge thing that you have to talk about because for the most part you don't feel the digital effects in this movie at all. There's one which I will talk about uh, in my best and worst, but for the most part they really rely on practical effects. The actors themselves talk about how wonderful it was because it was much easier, especially with how hard this fucking movie is to uh, to wrap your head around. That having practical things to interact with, seeing seeing the explosion, watching this happen, you know, actually reacting to the seven forty seven uh, <laughs> coming through the the wall of the hangar, all of those things were really important for the actors as choices, and and you see it through the film. They really react to it very 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 well. A funny thing about this, um, before we move on, because I forgot to mention it before, was that. Uh, Upon the first reading, John David Washington was was forced to read it locked inside of Christopher Nolan's office oh. at Warner Brothers and wasn't allowed to leave with the script or anything like that. It took him five <laughs> hours to read the script the first time because he had to keep flipping through to make sure that it all like, wait a minute, but this and that and blah, blah, blah. So with all of that involved, I think Gorenson actually does such important heavy lifting in this movie i could not agree with you more about the the music i have become just fully enamored with this guy i loved black panther before even realizing that it was him who did it i just like the music in it a lot i like the movie honestly a lot top to bottom i think michael b jordan was an incredible bad guy uh all of that stuff top to bottom the 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 biggest waste in that movie is forrest whitaker but whatever um that's another thing entirely um garnson is very young he definitely is like friends with people, and that's how he got into all of these things. He went to high school with the with the director 
I think, of Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, he won an Oscar for that. The Mandalorian, top to bottom, has been the most responsible Star Wars thing to come out in years. It's very, very good. It strikes the right tone for the old audiences and the new audiences. And the music in that is also like a vision. It's re- it's uh, relevatory. It shows you Westerns. It shows you sci-fi. It shows you themes. So like Gorenson, the best way that I can put this all together is that imagine if John Williams and Hans Zimmer went and did Molly at a music festival. <laughs> yeah. But that's not like those new technical. Like I like. That's what I mean. It's it's just like he's he's standing on the right two shoulders. In my opinion, he can be thematic. He can really rely on a seventy piece orchestra to sell you this notion of carrying through something. But he can also give you like that deep, ominous. What the hell is going on in this scene? It makes you kind of feel uncomfortable in your stomach, and then it changes from scene to scene in this movie depending on where we are. The the instrumentation and the grandeur of the music changes and it really pushes the story itself forward he like has full like modern to classic shifts where he's like using an arpeggiator to give you that stuff and the like the low tones the you know and all this stuff but then he can go into the strings and choral stuff that you heard on a new hope or on uh empire strikes back where it's a full choir singing these huge huge lines that sounds like carl orff or something like that fun thing 80 percent of the movie was done but there was some scoring stuff that wasn't able to be done because of the pandemic so he had to do what all of us have been doing which is a violinist would record this in their apartment and send it to the to the editor uh, to the sound editor and the engineers to mix it all together so we had like a, a 60 piece 70 piece orchestra that that submitted their final stuff amazing. one one by one from their apartments amazing and it was all mixed together another really fun thing that garnson did for this which is that like a lot of the satyr scenes he wanted them to be like really scary and ominous so he recorded christopher nolan doing like these deep breaths in and out <laughs> Oh, that that must be where I'm hearing all the in- ambient sounds because I did notice like you- right. well that that's what I was gonna bring up is that he uses all these like non musical tones to s- bring like the music into the room. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it at, at the um what's the what's it called again something twelve. Stalsk twelve. Okay, at Stalsk twelve, I feel like I heard the gravel that they are running on, but I think it was actually part of the music. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, that's what I mean by this person is really able to connect what you're seeing with what you're hearing so much so that I don't even think you realize it. Um, uh, It wasn't until second listen that a second watch of this movie and I'm starting to listen and like really hear these things that I'm like, Holy shit, this is a really good marriage between what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing. Yeah, I'm excited about this this person's career a lot. It's going to just get better. Oh, I forgot about The Prestige. We never even talked about The Prestige. That's another Chris Nolan movie. And that movie just never hit as hard as I feel like it was like trying to hit. Yeah, kind of yeah, kind of forgettable for me. Um the most recent one we have seen was Interstellar. I actually did not like the music of that movie very much. I didn't like the movie that much. It was I, all right. I like the movie. I've thought about it a lot since then, and I I actually... Um, it was a little all over the place. There was like a lot of stuff in that bag. It was a, it was a big bag of movie stuff There's going a big on. bag of movie stuff, definitely. Um, so Hans Zimmer fucked himself on this. Um, oh, why? 
because he was supposed to do the mu- music for it. He, this is the first film since The Prestige in 2006 that Hans Zimmer has not done with Chris Nolan. Ooh. And it was Hans Zimmer's decision. He um, Dune is a passion project for him. He loves the story of Dune and he'd wanted to do it forever. And he committed to doing the, mu- the music for the movie Dune, the remake of the movie Dune, um, and said no to this. Uh. And I don't know if he's ever going to get a spot back because... Uh, I mean, seriously, we could do an entire podcast just on Lu- on on Ludwig Göransson's yeah. score on this film. It's just so goddamn good. It really is. That's um, a that's a good uh, relationship right there. Yeah. I, I oh my god. I and I too. I am fully excited for that man's career. Mm-hmm. He's doing it right. So okay, here we are. The very last thing: best and worst effects. So. And this is where I always get confused between the technical elements and the effects. So I'm, I'm guessing the score. The score for me is because we don't really have a lot of digital effects. I think it's the score. I was going to say, like, possibly it's, it could also be the scene with the gun, the bullet. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of my worst as well. I don't know. What's yours? What's yours? My best is definitely the score. Right. I think the score is another character. The score is central cast yeah. in this movie. That's not common, but there are times in movies where the score is just so important that it, it really so does so much more than what else, what other people sometimes even are doing on screen. The score is incredible in this. My worst is unfortunately one of the only things that you really kind of do have to uh, do CGI, which is Sater's body falling off of the, the edge of the top deck of the... Yacht hitting the the rail and then going into the water. That looked a little fake because you just that's like a really hard thing to make re- look really really real. The sound effects were good. The foley on it was really good. It's like oh that's what the sunblock was for. But yeah. he, he kind of just like unceremoniously just like floop a splash. Um, and it looked all right. Yeah. I, I see that. The production team talks about it in interviews that they love that the they feel that the audience can tell when they're using practical or digital, and that's why they want to use as much practical as humanly possible. But that one's a hard one to get away from. Yeah, that's true. What did you think of the bullet, like with the scientists? Like I keep going back and forth on whether I like that or not. All of the inverted entropy things. This is why I'm. This is why I keep coming back to like not trying to super explain the science to myself because entropy to me. The scientific concept that I associate most with entropy because it actually changes in science depending on what you're talking about. Uh, The way that I've always thought of entropy is the way that it relates to chaos theory, that from the inception of anything, it is just headed towards decay. All systems break down and decay into a new state of equilibrium, Mm -hmm. which... That's the future's plan, by the way. Right, I know, which is which is a kind of like a false plan. Yes, um, because I mean, and I understand where it is because it is. It's kind of like what they talk about with time dilation uh, across any time movie, which is the the observer or creator of the time dilation is they themselves not affected by the time dilation, which is, I think, what the history, uh, what, what the future is trying to rely on is that they, by being the observers, will not be affected by the changes they're making to time, but I think they're wrong. And that's what I think the protagonist thinks, is that they're wrong. So I want to just briefly, I don't, we're, we don't have to get into all of it, 
But um, again, I, I saw a really great video by Tea Break Film Reviews um, that explains like five theories of this movie with time. And you just kind of talked about two of them, actually. So the first one was time inversion, which obviously is the whole idea of that um, one person going forward through time. When you go through the inverted turnstile, now essentially your clock is going backwards. So you're living life counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. Um, number two grandfather paradox and this kind of goes together with the future's plan which was her point number four Mm -hmm. so the future thinks that yes by eliminating the past right their 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 world will be have better you know resources and eventually and and hopefully stop um global warming but that doesn't really make any sense and that's the whole grandfather paradox is like uh if you go if you eliminate that whole past then you cease to exist but then you future rules right but then you need to exist in order to go back to kill your grandfather um yeah back to the future rules so here's what i'm thinking and they don't explain this in the movie at all no we talked about this last time this movie really relies on bill and ted's rules go back and then save your future selves you have to remember to go back after this and fix things for yourself which is essentially what satyr's whole thing is the pincer movement is when one team lives it and then the other team goes back and fixes what they got wrong right which is why i believe in that the car would go backwards because he's trying to go reverse what he had done but really (laughs) that wouldn't make any sense the future would end up killing their their they wouldn't exist in the future in in the future if this is their plan our limited view yes unless their plan is to eliminate our past where we kill all of our resources let the earth then you know replenish itself and then the future goes through the inverted turnstile goes back to the past then inverts again and lives the past but now forward through time with all of the new resources basically you like eliminate the whole world and start all over again adam and eve style i get it but you still i still feel like you need like a waiting room to right well, exit they're waiting and room. go into yeah, to not be killed eliminated right. yeah and we never like really get the future's plan very much i think the scientist is supposed to give us that plan right which once but again is another fan theory to do yeah they fail to explain that okay so let's get our final scores here yeah i gave this a 30 ali gave it a 35 and we averaged that out to a 32.5 we just decided we're gonna allow for half scores here it'll probably make for a more nuanced list so new high score this beats evolution to be the top rated movie on our podcast so that's kind of about it for tenant do you have any like closing remarks anything extra that you want to add in here i'll see you at the beginning my friend (laughs) (laughs) thanks again for joining us for another super science adventure you can check us out on all the social media platforms at ssa movie podcast or you can email us ssa movie podcast at gmail with your comments and questions thank you so much we'll see you next time